Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about something that is really important. But first, on March uh, 28th, 2023, Tucker Carlson on his uh, nightly show said that many Christian leaders are not speaking out against what's happening in in our churches and in the world in general about transgenderism. Well, if you know me well, you know that I take a challenge pretty seriously like that. And uh, it's something that I have spoken out on uh, before. We've had episodes of this show on transgenderism. So we are definitely speaking out about this issue. And so I hope that this episode will be helpful to you and help you understand what's happening in our world on this. We're going to consider on this episode what happened in Nashville. And I'm recording this, to be clear, on Thursday, March 29th, 2023, so that details surrounding this situation are going to evolve. And this episode is going to go up on Uh, Monday, April 3rd. But I also was thinking in light of what we talked about last uh, Wednesday, uh, March 29th, where we considered the biblical worldview stats from George, George Barna and why those stats matter. I thought that it would be good to give you a good example about why worldviews matter. And so at the outset, I wish to state that there's going to be some things that you wish I would have said more about, but the focus really of this episode, I want you to understand, is about the biblical worldview over and against the worldview of our world. So we're not going to dive into, as we have in the past, on uh, gender and even sexual fluidity as much as, or even gender dysphoria. Um, maybe we'll do that another time, but our our attention in this episode is going to be on the biblical worldview and the worldview that is uh, behind or what is driving the transgender movement. So let's start with now with the story coming out of Nashville. And we have to say at the start, this story is a heartbreaking story coming out of Nashville, Tennessee, a Christian school there, uh, the Covenant School. What we know is an intruder came in, a former student identified as both transgender and as one point as a as a female at another point also identified as a former student at the school. They took very powerful weapons and in a strategic and intentional attack, they killed three children. All about age nine and three teachers or administrators at the school. And so right now what we know is there's six dead, six victims of this mass shooting and the shooter is dead also. 
And now we also need to talk about how the Nashville law enforcement authorities have been very clear that there is more that they know about the situation than has been revealed as of the time of this recording. The police have openly spoken of a manifesto and a strategy or a plan for the attacks by some media reports. It, it was actually intended, this attack was intended to be at two locations, but it was reduced to one. We can give thanks to the police for that. The shooter herself was killed by police, by law enforcement at the scene, and we should pray for the shooter's family and for the victims. And one of the most important things about that we have is as Christians is we are to tell the truth. And part of telling the truth is to acknowledge, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. As of the time of this recording, that's basically what we know. And we're also going to be, re we can also reach a certain point when it comes to certain events where we say we don't, we only know this much and we have to say what we know. But in a particular case, we can talk about what we do know, but we already know there's much more to be known and there's still yet much more to be disclosed that is coming in that perhaps even, you know, this morning and in the days to come and so on and so forth. But here's something we already know. The heartbreak from this situation is incalculable, unthinkable. It's very difficult to, to talk about. But we are nevertheless talking about here about three children. And this situation involves targeting, not just to bring about the death of three children, but at least one was targeted with some kind of individual targeting. Again, law enforcement has made some of these points clear, but they've also made clear that there's going to be more that will be known rather quickly. And the three adults also, some of them have been targeted. But what we do know is that the, the school itself was a deliberate target and that the school, which is very clearly identified uh, with the evangelical congregation and is itself clearly identified even by its same name and certainly by its identity and its curriculum as a Christian school, it was intended by the shooter identity and identity as a woman had shifted to non-traditional pronouns, and all of a sudden, this was a transgender story. And now, here's what's really interesting about all of this. The Associated Press, for a long time, the Bellwether Press Service in the United States, formerly called a wire service, because the stories were actually conveyed over the wire services over Telegraph. And that's why you have the Telegraph itself as an early form of the transmission of the news. And then the wire service meant the stories would be wired even in the age of the telephone and digital communications. Well, you see, the Associated Press began by reporting that the shooter was a woman, and then shortly after, the story was issued without any particular gender reference. And now the LGBTQ issue is just as always before us it shows the corruption of language and the fact that it's virtually impossible to have a, con a conversation on this topic if you accept the premise of the LGBTQ revolution, and in particular the T for transgenderism and the non-binary because we're talking about the fact that the media have begun to make much of the fact that the shooter is a woman, only for all of a sudden the mainstream press committed to the LGBTQ agenda 
and to frankly making peace with the LGBTQ community that had come back. But you're going to notice they didn't come back and report the shooter as a man. And you must ask why, you must care why, if indeed you're looking at the pronouns being indicative and the transgender revolution being entirely authentic, you would think that the press would switch from woman to man. And that would be wrong, but it would at least be consistent. But at this point, that's not what's happened. Now, with a little sympathy, you might say, well, the press service and the major media are trying to figure it out. That's giving a large benefit of the doubt. And there are likely to be any number of implications from what we learn about this horrific event in Nashville, Tennessee. But what we do know is there's much more to be still known. What we know right now is that the press has made a mess of the story, partly because it's an incredibly complicated story. But you just have to note that as soon as the LGBTQ issue or that dimension arises in a kind of a news story, sadly, in one sense, that becomes so much a part of the news story. And in my revelatory part of the news story, not only about that event, but the press coverage and the culture in the midst of all of the confusion, finding itself virtually unable to even talk about this horrible event because we've lost the ability to talk in a coherent way about gender and sexuality itself in our culture. And this is where Christians have to understand that if you accept a little bit of incoherence, you're going to have to accept the whole mad delusion. There is no way to try to go back and build a halfway house after you destroyed the foundation. But just upon what we know, we have to reflect upon the fact that when you're talking about the strategic targeting of a school, you're talking about something more that, that is just unquestionably evil. And when you talk about the deliberate targeting of young children in a school, that just raises the moral issue stakes by indicating what's at stake morally in what is becoming an increasing theme in our society. But there's unique uh, aspects to this story. We know that already. Our hearts have to go out to those Christians, especially those parents and those family members of the church and of related churches in the Nashville area. Sometimes as Christians, we have to put our desire to understand a situation on hold and just move forward to pray for those who we know it's it's the right thing, always the thing that we're called to do. And so we need to pray. We need to pray for the families, the churches, and the people that are affected by this situation. That is the right, and it is the proper Christian response. But there's also more that we need to dive into. And so now I want to talk about, um, you know, how what is transgenderism and how does transgenderism counter a biblical worldview? I mentioned this at the beginning that we're going to talk about transgenderism and we're going to uh, seek to understand how it how it uh, the, the worldview behind uh, what transgenderism is pushing and we're also going to talk about how the biblical worldview counters it. But first we need to ask what makes human uh what makes human beings men and women? A couple of decades ago the answer to this question would have been obvious, but it's not obvious in our current cultural climate. What was once an obvious biological reality has now been hijacked and corrupted by moral relativism, just do whatever you want to do and the sexual revolution that is happening in our world. 
Transgender activists have succeeded in sowing mass confusion on the topics of sex and gender, and this confusion has ignited a new front in the culture wars that very few people outside of evangelical Christian thinkers anticipated. But we need, in order to understand what's happening, we need to understand transgender ideology and what the Bible says about gender. Transgenderism maintains that gender is a distinct form and at times in conflict with biological sex. And according to transgender activists, gender is a social construct and gender identity is subjective to a state of self-understanding. The real self is not biologically based, it's psychologically based. And by this thinking, the real self is defined by one's gender identity. A person is the gender they experience themselves to be. Unlike the traditional biblical view that attaches gender to biological sex, transgenderism detaches gender from sex, and it does so in a number of ways. First, transgenderism claims that a person's biological sex does not determine their identity. Rather, a person uh, can identify either as a pole on the gender binary, a man or a woman. They can identify as fluid, meaning they are somewhere in between the two poles of the gender binary, or they can even deny the gender binary completely and identify as something outside of it that would be non-binary. Now, the basic goal of transgender activists is gender deconstruction. They believe that the tr traditional understanding of gender, wherein gender is biologically based, is a cultural construct. And so that construct can be replaced with a new gender paradigm. And transgender ideology, it suffers from many philosophical problems, too many, in fact, to cover in this episode. For example, transgenderism claims that gender is a, is a cultural construct, but maintains that gender is an innate, that is, natural or naturally belonging to a person. And that is inconsistent. As Ryan T. Anderson points out that when Harry became Sally, if gender as a social construct, then gender identity is too. And also transgenderism, mind-body dualism, where real self is psychologically based, not biologically based, can apply to other concepts besides gender identity. And to be logically consistent, we have to be honest, transgender activists must accept and affirm trans species, transracial, trans ability, and trans age communities. And aside from that inconsistency, Transgender ideology has enormous political, economic, cultural, and medical ramifications. Gender identity, not biological sex, is now used in many hospitals to determine the proper medical treatment for patients, including minors. Transgender activists are undermining protections for women and children in sports and education and public accommodations and military and prisons. Transgender ideology threatens religious liberty and the freedom of conscience for Christian schools, businesses, and individuals. And so what should we as Christians think about transgenderism? Well, the Bible records that the original created order as male and female in Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 5.2. This gender binary is linked to God's mandate for human beings to populate the earth in Genesis 1.28. It also is an operative principle in the account of Noah's flood when animals are put onto the ark as gender pairs of male and female, as well as when God reaffirms his mandate to repopulate the earth in Genesis 6 through 9. 
So gender distinction, we can say, is at the core of who we are. And yet we can say more about this because gender distinctions are enforced in the Old Testament. The Mosaic law prohibited Israelites from assuming the gender of the opposite sex. Men were not to appear or behave like women and vice versa, according to Deuteronomy 22.5. The sin described in Deuteronomy 22.5 was not the mere act of wearing clothing or the, of the opposite sex, but of appearing as the opposite sex. It was a sign of moral rebellion against the created order of male and female and was a deliberate sin in the same category as the other sexual sins, according to Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20, verse 3. And, it, and as we look at the New Testament, Jesus affirms the, the sex and the gender uh, distinctions established at creation in Matthew 19.4. And the Apostle Paul reaffirms the moral principles behind the Mosaic Law that men and women should express themselves in ways that align with their sex in 1 Corinthians 11, 7-15. And Paul's writing also reveals that gender expression is closely aligned with other gender rules, which are different for men and women in various settings. Men and women not only have gender distinctions in creation, that we see that in Genesis 2, 8, but also in the home. We see that throughout the New Testament. And in the church, only men are to be pastors, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And women are to minister to other women, as Titus 2 instructs. And we can say a lot about that. But moving forward, Scripture also indicates that although marriage and procreation do not continue in heaven, our gender bodies do, which means that the intentional deformation of our genders is a serious offense to the design of God for humanity, both now and in eternity. And so transgender ideology is a rebellion against God's moral order, and the effects of that rebellion keep devastation on societies, on families, and individuals. And Christians must remember that sin affects every aspect of humanity. The effects of sin on humanity have produced all kinds of problems, and some of these problems manifest in uh, physiological or sexual, sexual confusion. Christians should acknowledge the need for medical procedures to correct for genetic or biological aberrations. Many of these aberrations, Turner syndromes, Clefter syndrome, five alpha redox syndrome, etc., and so on and so forth, represent an extremely small percentage of the population, but they exist in a sinful world. We can recognize the need to treat these conditions while also remaining faithful to the scriptures. And yet the Bible also informs us that the human heart is bent towards evil in Genesis 6-5, and it's incredibly deceitful, Jeremiah 17-9 says. And by basing one's gender identity on inward subjective feelings or desires rather than biological reality, a transgendered person is relying on something that the Bible says corrupt and unreliable for discerning moral truth. Now let's talk about the worldview behind this. How you think about transgenderism will depend on your anthropology, that is, your view of human nature, what we are, and what we're supposed to be as humans. And furthermore, your anthropology will depend on, uh, in turn, on your broader worldview, such as your view of God, ultimate reality, truth, meaning, value, and so on and so forth. And so let's, let's consider how worldviews now have shaped thinking about this issue, both by non-Christians and by Christian. And here's a summary of what we might call you know, the mainstream narrative or on transgenderism. 
The narrative we find represented in most mainstream media outlets and popular movies and TV shows and by progressive politicians and celebrity. In the past, people look uh, took for granted, I should say, that gender and sexuality were simple matters. You were either born a man or a woman, and, and that was the end of it. But now we know better. We understand that gender and sexuality are more complex than previous generations understood. There's a difference, we understand, between biological sex or birth sex and gender identity. And some people have suggested that gender identity, other than their biological sex, and so we have cases of a man of a man born in a woman's body and a woman born in a man's body. In fact, gender identity is itself complex. It's a continuum rather than a binary. And some people are just more male than female and vice versa. In fact, some people are neither male nor female. They don't identify with either gender. And so we need uh, new categories, they suggest, such as gender queer and gender fluid. And amid all this complexity and this fluid, there is one central point. Gender identity reflects a person's true identity. It represents who they are as a person. And so they should be able to express that gender identity as they see fit without fear of judgment or disapproval or discrimination. It's a basic human right issue for a person to live according to their designed gender identity. And I said that last sentence that way on purpose. This means that gender identity must trump everything else. Biological sex, physiology, birth certificate, and on and on. And if a person is unhappy with their biological sex, physiology, etc., they have the right to pursue whatever are, are available means to correct them. What's more, everyone else must respect and support their right to do so. And the most recent chapter that we see in this narrative is about parenting. Parents now need to be aware that they might have a transgender child and those who have an obligation to affirm and accommodate their child's gender identity. Uh, gender identity. Now, that's the what I just explained is the mainstream narrative. And we can identify now some of the key themes that drive this narrative in our world. Gender identity understood as a core identity, meaning that's who I am. Sexual diversity and liberty, civil rights, meaning the LGBTQ movement understood as the latest front, tolerance and non-discrimination, science and technology, the main hope for solutions and two human problems. The mainstream narrative on transgenderism is just one among many interrelated cultural narratives that are being promoted in our day. And yet we need to recognize that the cultural narratives aren't self-sustaining. They're not just uh, uh, coming out of nowhere. We need to recognize that they are situated within a worldview that makes them meaningful, that makes them intelligible, that makes them plausible. And simplifying some, somewhat, we can identify two secular worldviews that have shaped and supported the mainstream narrative on transgenderism. The first is naturalism. Now, naturalism is the view that nature is all there really is, where nature is basically understood as whatever can be studied scientifically. And so for the naturalist, the natural universe, the physical cosmos is the only reality that exists, or at least the only reality that matters. And so according to naturalism, everything is ultimately a scientific explanation, and that must include human nature and human experiences. Now, according to the standard origin story of naturalism, we are the products of undirected naturalistic evolutionary process. 
we're highly evolved animals with some unique abilities in that view. And in this view, there is no transcendent purpose. There's no meaning for human life. If there's any meaning to human life, it is one that we create ourselves. And it's no secret that naturalism has a hard time accounting for objective moral laws. On what basis can a naturalist argue that some human behaviors can be objectively morally right while others are objectively morally wrong? If naturalism is true, why would there be laws of morality that stand over us? How could there be, we must ask. And in the, ab and in the absence of better moral theories, naturalists will commonly adopt some uh, version of utilitarianism, according to which morality is defined in terms of whatever maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain. That is the phrase, the greatest happiness for the greatest number, as, Jer as Jeremy Bentham famously expressed it. And how then would a naturalist view transgenderism? Well, a naturalist will want to say that gender identity is a psychological phenomenon rooted in the physical brain. And so for the naturalist, all human experiences reduce to brain science. And so there have been various scientific studies done seeking to demonstrate some correlation between gender identity and brain structure or brain chemistry. And so a naturalist will be inclined to say that transgenderism is just one facet of human biological diversity or of, of a natural variation within a species. There's no right and there's no wrong to them in that view. Transgenderism to them isn't a disorder or, or dysfunction because on the naturalist view, there's simply no right uh, way or wrong way for a human to be. We are what naturalistic evolutionary processes have made us. End of story. And if anything can be said to be wrong, it's that some people are unhappy with their bodies. They have a male body, they have a female brain, and vice versa, and that incongruity comes causes them pain, I should say. It causes them emotional suffering. And so if they're going to be happy, one or the other, the body or the brain needs to be changed. And so what must change? Well, for the naturalist, it's the body that's going to have to change for two basic reasons. First, it's generally easier and safer to modify the body than to tinker with the brain. And secondly, our personal identity is more closely associated with our brain because the brain is the seat of consciousness and thus self-consciousness. And so from the naturalist point of view, it makes sense for a transgender person to pursue sex reassignment treatments. Now, postmodernism, to simplify matters to an almost criminal extent, it can be characterized as a view that there are no absolute norms and there is no objective reality. And so according to that worldview of postmodernism, reality isn't something objective that is out there to be discovered. It isn't something that exists independently of our thoughts and of our language. Reality, then, is something we can construct about by the way we think, by the way we speak, about our subjective, our personal experiences. And that means, of course, that the truth is always relative to how I feel. It's relativized either to the individual subject or to groups of subjects, communities, or societies. And so the postmodernists will have quite a different take on transgenderism than the naturalists. For the postmodernist, gender is a fluid social construct that isn't anchored to any objective biological category. In fact, it isn't a category imposed on us by nature. Rather, it's a category we invented and which we impose on ourselves. 
And so gender identity then isn't rooted in brain physiology as a naturalist holds, but is entirely a matter of personal preference and self-perception. Put another way, what you are is what you perceive yourself to be. That's what postmodernism understands. And in fact, more strongly, what you are is what you conceive yourself to be. And so for self-conception, it's more powerful than mere self-perception. And in fact, on this radical view, you have freedom and the right to define yourself, indeed to redefine yourself without limit. And if your physical appearance doesn't align with your self-defined identity, well, then guess what? Your physical appearance needs to get in line. And so we have here two secular worldviews. In quite different ways, they provide a broader framework for the mainstream narrative that we've discussed about transgenderism. And the irony is, is that these two worldviews aren't consistent with each other. They contradict each other. They make some fundamentally incompatible claims. On the naturalist view, gender identity is a kind of biological fact. It's an objective truth about human beings that can be scientifically explained and justified. And on the postmodernist view, gender isn't a biological fact, but rather a social construct. It's something we are created rather than something nature gave us. And so gender identity, to adapt our phrase, is created, not begotten. And despite these fundamentalist disagreements, we find that these two worldviews frequently get mixed up together whenever the mainstream narrative on transgenderism is defined. And what's more, we should recognize that these two worldviews, naturalism and postmodernism, they have one tenet in common. They have a commitment to human autonomy. Both proceed from an absolute denial of any transcendent divine norms. And what then is the overarching lesson that we can learn about this? Well, it is this. When we approach the issue of transgenderism, we need to be aware of how the issues and the overarching narrative have been supported and even shaped by secular worldviews that are committed to human autonomy. We must not look at the issue through those warped lenses. Rather, we must view the issue through the lens of a Christian worldview, a worldview that represents a biblical perspective on God, creation, revelation, human nature, moral laws, the fallenness of this world, and what God has done and is doing to redeem this fallen world. And so we need to also talk about what is known as triperspectivalism. And this is going to help us to really understand. Uh, uh, give a Christian assessment of transgenderism, both as a condition, as a cultural movement. As a guiding schema for that assessment, uh, let's consider John Frame's tri-perspectival approach to ethics, which is developed in the greatest detail in his very large book and helpful book, also very intense book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life. Now, Frame contends that any issue in Christian ethics can be considered from three perspectives— the normative, the situational, and the uh, the existential. So let's consider these uh, these three uh, conceptual portals. So first, the normative. The normative perspective it invites us to ask what are the norms or the standards that apply here. And perhaps the the most the first and the most general thing to say is that God Himself is our ultimate norm. Frame says, and so God Himself is the final standard we can say of what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And that entails an utter repudiation of the kind of a human autonomy reflected in the two secular worldviews we considered. God is the author of creation. He defines his creation. God is the creator of humankind, defines what it means to be human in his word. And so we do not get to define what we are or who we are. 
And in fact, in matters of Christian ethics, God's norms are expressed primarily in his laws. God's laws are what we might call our proximate norms. And in the first place, we have what the Reformed theologians have called creation ordinances, moral laws grounded in the order and the design of creation. And the most relevant creation ordinance is that of human sexuality and family relationships, which we see in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2, 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it can hardly be uh, clearer from the creation account that God did not intend sexuality and gender to be fluid and expressed on a continuum. And indeed, the assumption throughout the entire Bible is that there are two sexes, male and female, and the, the primary determiner of a person's sex is physiology. We are embodied beings, and our sexuality is expressed through our bodies. And so the creation account thus establishes some foundational norms of human sexuality. And secondly, we have the Ten Commandments, which the Reformed tradition has consistently taken as a summary of God's moral law. A number of these commandments are directly relevant to transgenderism. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Once again, we find here an, an implicit repudiation of human autonomy, which is a form of idolatry, treating the creature as though it were the creator. And we need to recognize that the LGBTQ movement represents a form of idolatry, treating human experiences as a greater authority than the word of God. And whatever our response to transgenderism and so on and so forth, it must be a response that seeks to interpret human experience in light of the word of God rather than the reverse. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. This commandment presupposes parental authority and leadership. It stands firmly against the idea that a child should set the agenda regarding his or her identity. And the commandment also means that parental oversight and the care of children and thus the protection of children within a proper family structure. And so this has major implications for transgender parents, especially the cases of transgender men who conceive and give birth, cases which we should expect to increase in number as transgenderism becomes even more and more mainstream. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. This commandment enjoins the preservation and the protection of human life and has implication, among other things, for sex reassignment treatments, many of which carry significant health risks. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This commandment presupposes the biblical understanding of marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman, which in turn presupposes the bi basic binary of sexual differentiation uh, established in Genesis 1 and 2. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Well, according to the shorter uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, the ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between a man and a woman and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. And this is obvious implications for sex reassignment treatments. If biological sex is indeed the primary indicator of ontological sex, then such treatments are a form of deception, an elaborate charade in which people attempt to present themselves falsely as members of the opposite sex. And so we can see then from the normative perspective, the Bible has much to say about how we should understand and evaluate these issues. 
Now, the situational perspective, it invites us to ask, how does our situation uh, bear on the issue? Our situation typically include our environment, facts about nature, our cultural circumstances, and on and on. Ethnically relevant information about our situation can come not only from the Bible, but also from sources outside the Bible, such as responsible scientific research. And so we could say a lot about this issue from a situational perspective, but we need to be focused here because we don't have uh, all the time in the world to elaborate. But the most fundamental thing that I can say about this, about our situation, is that we live in a fallen world. The human race is a fallen race. We are broken people, morally, physically, emotionally, uh, psychologically. And so the natural world is, in fact, under a curse, as the Bible tells us. And one crucial implication is that in a fallen world, we need to draw a distinction between what is natural and what is normal. That sometimes occurs naturally, does not imply that it is right or even good. And this strand, uh, stands in contradiction to the born this way narrative promoted by many of the LGBTQ uh, campaigners. And so the basic fact about the world also means that human experience must not be treated as normative. Our experiences, our feelings, our perceptions are all corrupted by sin. And so uh, thus, they, they always need to be interpreted critically and evaluated in light of the Word of God. And so one last thing that we must note about the situational perspective, that something is scientifically possible doesn't mean it's ethically permissible. This ought to uh, state the obvious, be obvious to state, I mean, but unfortunately we're faced with a major problem today as public ethics and public policy, rather than constraining scientific research and technological developments, are being dragged along in their wake. Now, moving along, the existential perspective. And the existential perspective in Christian ethics, it places a spotlight on the individual person involved in moral decisions and in actions. And so that person's character, their motives, their emotions, their experiences, and their internal faculties must be considered. And so the existential perspective, it focuses on what the Bible calls the heart, the inner core from which all thoughts, all words, and all actions proceed. And as with the other two perspectives, numerous points could be raised and even discussed under this, but we're going to focus on two of the most important. First, we need to acknowledge that the human heart in its natural state is fallen and corrupt. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, Scripture tells us? And all of us ought to therefore be very skeptical about our hearts are telling us about who we are, what is right, and how we should find fulfillment and so on apart from Scripture. Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, hit the nail on the head when he said the most difficult book you will ever read is your own heart. We ought to have a natural distrust for our self-perception. This obviously has implications for how we think about gender identity and also about how we evaluate gender dysphoria, which we're not going to get into today. But secondly, the existential perspective, it draws our attention to issues of self-identity. What defines us? What makes us who we are? And what way should and, and what should we locate our identity? Well, we can see cl two closely related errors in the transgender movement in the following. The idea that we should locate our identity in our gender or sexuality. And second, the idea and the deeper error that we ourselves define our identity. But we need to understand something that in a biblical worldview, both of those expressions, both those statements, I mean, are 
uh, are expressions of autonomy and idolatry. And the biblical view counters that by saying that God defines us, and we find our identity in him. More specifically, if we, if we are believers, we find our identity in Christ. And so tying this all together, here are some conclusions. The transgender movement is merely the latest phase of a moral and cultural revolution, which is grounded in a secular worldview, committed to human autonomy, and thus to a wholesale rep repudiation of the God of the Bible. And while we must hold fast to the biblical truth that every human being is made in the image of God and precious in the sight of God, we must also affirm that every human being, every last one of us, is fallen in sin and sexually uh, broken. Gender dysphoria and other forms of gender confusion are but one manifestation of that sexual brokenness in a post-fall world. And while the biblical worldview provides the only solid foundation for human rights, we must reject the idea that those human rights include what we now call transgender rights, the right to live according with one's gender identity, and the right to have that gender identity affirmed by others. And so let's uh, talk about what is the Christian response to this. And we can't, again, go into every single situation and, and explain everything, but we should distinguish between a cultural response to the transgender movement and a pastoral response to individuals who suffer from gender dysphoria or self-identify as transgender. And it's, a, it's important to avoid letting one kind of response drive the other kind. And in the political climate in which we live, there's a particular danger of allowing the cultural wars to even shape our pastoral response to these. But anyway, here's, uh, here's some thoughts on the cultural response. It's imperative that Christians, and especially church leaders, adopt a, a biblical stand about the challenges on, uh, related to God's design for human sexuality. We need to speak clearly and consistently about biblical norms. In fact, the title of one of Dr. Mueller's books is exactly right. We cannot be silent. And this means we need to be ready. We need to be willing to engage in public debate and public dialogue. And we need to speak up about things that matter like this. But we also need to present a compelling cultural narrative. If we fail to do that, the mainstream media is going to win, and they are winning. And so we need to stand up. And that's why I took Tucker Carlson's challenge seriously when he says that he sees not many Christian leaders speaking up. Well, this Christian leader will not be silent. No, he will stand on the word of God and he will, I, I will faithfully teach the word of God and speak up about these matters because it is important because people are being, uh, no, when you are silent, you are just giving up the argument and that's not anything that we should do as Christians. We are told in the Bible to love the truth and to stand on the truth and to proclaim the whole truth of the whole counsel of God. And so whether you're in a pulpit and you're preaching men, a biblically qualified pastor, or you're a single mom or you're a homeschool mom, you can stand up. You can teach your children the truth about what God says about what the, about who they are and what they are as God has made them. And you can teach them about sin. You can teach them about the person and work of Christ. You can teach them about the character of God, and on and on we could go with that. And there are two good reasons why why there needs to be a strong cultural response from the church. First is that it is our responsibility as Christians to promote the public good, especially when it comes to protecting children from damaging parental practices and destructive ideologies that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. 
Like the Jewish exiles, we should seek the welfare of the cities and towns and villages in which God has placed us. And secondly, there's a need to preserve religious liberty. Above all, the freedom to preach the Bible and proclaim the gospel, which is increasingly threatened by the demand for LGBTQ rights, a demand that invariably translates into the suppression of those who continue to stand firm on biblical norms. And we're not at the end of this issue. We're not even at the end of the rope in this cultural battlefield. There's more to come, and there's going to even be more that's going to shock us and alarm us about what's happening on homosexuality and transgenderism. And consider what the category of gender fluid rejecting the binary of male and female implies with respect to the kind of reconstructive surgery that will be demanded in the future and is happening today. And the damage that it's causing, and people have acknowledged that. But And yet, even in the midst of this, we may take encouragement from the fact that the transgender revolution did not take God by surprise. Some people believe that today. In fact, overwhelmingly, over 40% of people, uh, professing Christians, according to the State of Theology last year, which is published in conjunction with LIFI Research and um, Ligonier Ministries, they think that God does change, That meaning that God, things do take God by surprise. And yet the, the biblical witness is that God is not surprised, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. As Hebrews uh, 13, 5 and 9 says, he is immutable. God does not change. He is unchanging, and he is faithful and good and true. As Titus 1, 2 says, he never lies. And so we can trust him. We can take the Lord at his word, because 2 Corinthians 1, 20 says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. You see, the Lord foresaw what was happening with the transgender movement, even as he fashioned the first man and the first woman. And so we can be confident that God's word is a sure and a sufficient guide and a binding word as we navigate these stormy seas that our Heavenly Father will grant wisdom and comfort to those who seek his face in humility and faith, and that the atoning work of Christ will prove sufficient to cleanse and restore those who are called to be conformed to his image. Some last uh, thoughts here as we conclude this episode. At the heart of much of the gen of discussion today on gender, whether it's uh, talking about homosexuality, transgenderism, gender dysphoria, or polyamy, it is a wrong understanding of the image of God and man. Much of the discussion is occurring in a secular media that wants to promote equality and tolerance among all the genders. And yet such a view, we must be honest, encourages people to believe that there's fundamentally different, no difference at all between a man uh, being a man and a woman being a woman made in the image of God. And yet the biblical witness testifies overwhelmingly in favor of a man being a man and a woman being a woman, all based on the creation account in Genesis and references to those passages in Scripture, such as in Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and Genesis 2, 20 through 22. The transgender movement today has further conflated manners, as we've discussed, about the image of God. The LGBTQ movement has convinced people to such a degree using uh, cultural, social uh, uh, argumentation that now uh, people accept homosexuality and transgenderism as a normative state, even in the church. And yet the truth of the Bible still stands in opposition to this view, because God had a specific idea in mind when he created man and woman in his image, as Scripture teaches. 
And likewise, many people today are convinced that marriage isn't between one man and one woman, but rather it can and even should be between two men or two women or one man with two women or any number of other non-biblical configurations. And yet, despite this cultural belief, the Bible says one man and one woman is not only the God-given standard, it's the only way to have a marriage that honors God. And pornography degrades women and men by giving people permission to see them not as a helpmate, as Genesis 2.20 says, or in cases of men being objectified, seeing them not as a true leader of the home, but only as someone to be viewed as an object for their pleasure. In addition to these challenges on gender roles, evolutionary thinking has led many people to conclude there's no difference between humans and other organisms. By this, I mean I'm referring to the theory of evolution, which suggests that all organisms have come to be through a blind, unguided process of random variation, natural selection, and other effects such as genetic drift. And although there are different versions of evolutionary theory, this one, the theory of evolution, is most prominent in our day, and it carries serious implications concerning what it means to be human. And yet the truths of Genesis 1 through 2, we must say, are coming under increasing attacks from ideologies of homosexuality, uh, polygamy, pornography, transgenderism, and on and on. And yet such attacks, we must understand, strike at the heart of what it means to be created in the image of God. And we must understand as Christians, we have good answers to these issues because the Word of God speaks to them, friends which is why we need to speak up. We need to proclaim the truth as provided in the word of God without fear, without apology, standing fast on the word of God, always being ready as 1 Peter 3.15 says to give a reason for the hope that we have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And so one of the central questions and also one of the most fundamental issues of our day, it revolves around one significant question. Is the Bible's teaching on gender roles and sexuality in particular true? And if it is true, and I am convinced it is, then we need to ask the question. Does that mean that homosexuality, transgender, pornography, masturbation, and our sex outside of marriage is wrong? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Biblical sexuality and biblical gender roles begin in the heartbeat of our creator, God. You see, he first took man from the dust, and he breathed life into him. And then he saw that it was not good for man to be alone, and he took a rib from Adam and made Eve, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and Genesis 2, 20 through 24 tells us. He made man first, and then he made Eve to be a helpmate, Genesis 2, 20 through 24 says. And so this is very significant. And the next question that we need to ask is, does the authority of Scripture matter on issues related to biblical sexuality and biblical gender roles? And you're going to get dozens and dozens of answers to that question in various areas of contemporary evangelicalism. And what it boils down, to be honest with you about that, is what we believe about the authority of the Bible matters. Either the Bible's teaching is clear in Genesis 1 through 2 and Ephesians 5 and other places about the place of a man and the role of a wife in the home, or it's not. Dr. Owen Strand is right when he says if if the major issue of the 16th century was that of acceptance, how a man can be forgiven by God, and the major issue of the 20th century was that of authority, whether the Bible is inerrant, then the major issue of our time is that of anthropology, what it means to be human. And to the degree that the church stands on the word, it will continue to proclaim the biblical truth about morality, generals, and sexuality from the Word of God. So one last thought here. 
the issue before us is framed as it is, as we've talked about today, because the whole issue of marriage and the family, about homosexuality and transgenderism, it's, it's all under attack because the issue is authority. Who is authoritative? And at the heart of this attack is a question. Is God authoritative overall? Or am I free to do whatever I want? And what our culture wants, make no mistake about it, is a God, a quote-unquote false God, who only comes so far but never demands them to do anything. And the God of the Bible is the opposite of this. Because God, the biblical God, does make demands through his own character, which is tied to his holy and blemished character. The God of the Bible not only says he will come near, he knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, along with the very hairs in our heads. So this, friends, is why we must stand on the word of God. Without apology, without fear of man, we must proclaim the whole counsel of God for the good of all people, that they might repent and believe and put their trust and put their hope in Christ alone. So we need not fear. We need not fear. We need to fear God. We need to honor God. We need to reverence God. We need to worship God in all of life. And we need to use the voice that God has given us, wherever God has placed us, in the home. Speak to your children about these things. Teach them these things. Teach them who they are. If they're a young boy, teach them that they are a young boy. If they're a young girl, teach them that they are a young girl. If you have teenagers, teach them as well. If they're a young man, teach them that they are a young man and that a young man fights against sin and keeps his way pure before the Lord. Teach that young woman to about modesty and so much more about what womanhood is and the beauty of it from God's word. And, and, and model these things. Men, model to your children what it means to be a godly man. Women, <laughs> model what it means to be uh, to your young child or to your teenage daughter, what it means to be a woman of God. At church, we need to model to our young men, men of God. We need to model to the men in our churches what it means to be a man of God in the home and in the church, at work and in the public square. Women, we need to. We need you to model what it means to be a woman of God. Married couples, we need the same today. That is one of the greatest witnesses to our world that is so confused and thinks that marriage between one man and one woman, it, it doesn't work because of our, of our no-fault divorce culture. We need to model. We need to act on, I should say, the convictions that we believe about one man and one woman for life under God. We need to grow in these things. We need to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the word of God and, and applying the grace of God into our own lives, personally, in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches, and so that we can speak out consistently and coherently and witness to a watching culture who is looking on, who is seeing Yes, do they they believe that, but are they are they living by those truths? Are they modeling those truths or are they just a bunch of hypocrites saying one thing and doing another? Friends, we must stand, we must stand on the word of God. We must stand unapologetically. We must be formed by the word. We must gr be grounded in, we must be shaped by the word, and that's for all of life. And so where we have failed, may you and I may we repent and may we return. As, Levitic, as Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. 
And that's the biblical pattern we, where we do it. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, there's a lot to be said about this. I, I haven't said everything in this episode, but I hope that this episode has been helpful to for you to understand what the worldviews are behind transgenderism and what the Bible has to say about these matters. So until next Monday and Wednesday, may God bless you and keep you, and thank you for listening to Equipping You in Grace, and please tell your friends about this show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.